step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. General Porter, General Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal. I appreciate uh, everybody taking time from counting their rolls of toilet paper and uh, looking for signs of, of chaos and concern on the horizon and uh, join us here for another edition of Midrats. And if you are with the esteemed cohort live that is not watching the president's press conference because you thought you'd get more value here, we uh, first of all applaud you for your superb judgment. And if you want to, you can scroll down to the bottom of the show page, and that's where you'll find a link to the chat room. And if you have some observations you'd like to share with us during the course of the show, or if there are some questions you would like for us to address to our guest, that's a great way to do it because we'll be monitoring that as the show goes forward. And, of course, if you've got to uh, run off sometime during the show to take inventory again or whatever you feel like you need to do, you can always come back and watch to watch the – not watch. I wish we had video, maybe. Uh, but you can listen to the full podcast over on iTunes or any of the other podcast aggregators you may use. But let's go ahead and get on with the show. Um, I know everybody here is kind of in, well, if you're an introvert, you're kind of enjoying our approved uh, social distancing platform that lends itself well to mid-rats. And your host and our guests, we're all maintaining three states apart from each other. So don't worry that uh, we're all in one room um, sharing various uh, things we're throwing off because we're not. And we think this is going to be a good COVID-19 related break for everybody, because I know that's where everybody's concern is. And what we're going to do today is we're going to examine one word and some of the concepts around it, specifically as it involves the, the military and civilian political leadership, and that word is obedience. We're going to look at what the nature of obedience is, um, based on a review of you know, classical studies, philosophy, history, international relations, literature, military studies, all those things touch on in different threads, the whole idea about obedience. But the word is complicated, and there's a few thousand years of uh, smart people thinking hard on the topic, and I still don't think we have it mastered. But we're going to try in one hour to at least give a partial answer. And we have a returning guest in Midrats. Uh, to talk about this, all based upon her new book titled On Obedience, Contrasting Philosophies for the Military, Citizenry, and Community, and that is Dr. Pauline Curran-Shanks. She is a professor in the College of Leaderships and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College, where she teaches courses in military ethics, warfare, business, ethics, social, and political. As a side note, uh, while she's here with us, she's just speaking on her own behalf, and her comments and opinions may or may not represent the view of the Naval War College, the U.S. Navy, or any other entity she may be associated with. Pauline, welcome back to Midraps. Thank you so much for having me back. I guess you didn't learn your lesson the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know us slow students. Sometimes you just got to keep hitting them over and over again and eventually go into syllabus. So it'll work out. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to, to, to start off 
on something that I, I know irritates authors more than anything else when you're talking to them about their their latest passion and love they invested so much time in their book, and that's quoting another author. <laughs> but I thought <laughs> this would be a good way to to kind of set the scene for everybody because it will give you an opener to describe um, what you're doing right now for the Navy and the military as a whole that some people may not be aware of. But I would like to point um, to an article by somebody, and it also feeds into to one of my favorite things is I'm not a big fan, uh, and this is a dangerous thing to say to somebody who has a Ph.D., but I'm not a big fan of credentialism, and I'm also not a big fan of people who think you have to be a certain age or a certain background to uh, to think about and write about certain ideas. And uh, Officer Cadet Christopher Wooding, who right now, of all things, he's uh, uh, not only an officer cadet for the Australian Army, but he's working on his bachelor's degree in math and computer sciences. But over on March 15th, he put out an article that – um, my first instinct, because I knew we had you come on yesterday, hey, did, did Paul Eaton write this? And I'm like, no, because <laughs> the title is kind of catchy. It's Why We Need Philosophy and PME. And this is a little quote from uh, Officer Cadet Woody from the, from the center. And he does a, a pretty good job answering this himself, at least from his perspective later on. But his quote is the following quote. Philosophy is literally a love of wisdom. It is the rational, abstract, and methodological consideration of reality as a whole or a, fund, or a fundamental dimensions of human existence and experience. This is, in essence, learning and applying various frameworks to provide insight and practical guidance to address real-world situations and challenges. This begs the question, why study philosophy as part of PME? end of extended quote. And so I wanted to, to give that as an opportunity to have you explain to the listener who may not realize, wait, Naval War College philosophy, why do we have somebody teaching philosophy up there? Talk a little bit about what you do at the Naval War College, who your, your, your students are, and maybe in your own way answer the very broad question that uh, Christopher Wooding put out there. By the way, I was a big, a big fan of the article, um, and I think it's, you know, um, you know, I think it speaks to the value of uh, multidisciplinarity. I, I think, you know, as a philosopher, I can acknowledge the value in other disciplines, and so it's nice to see someone who's not a philosopher who wrote that. Um, and I agreed with most of uh, what he said um, at the Naval War College. Um, I'm the ethics chair, and so uh, I'm sort of broadly responsible for uh, most things ethics. And the way that the way I define that is not as our our good friends who are JAGs think of ethics as the law, um, but ethics is is reflecting on and and thinking about moral perspectives and moral judgments. Um, and so I teach courses in I teach our core course. Uh, leadership in the profession of arms, which is a fairly new course, which has elements of ethics in it. Um, I also teach an elective in just war theory. I teach um, uh, both as a, I'll be teaching as a regular elective and also part of our Stockdale Leaders Program, the Foundations of Moral Obligation course, which is a moral philosophy course that was pioneered by Admiral Stockdale himself when he was president of the Naval uh, War College. So I, I do a fair amount of teaching, which is sort of what I prefer to do. But I also I work on our uh, on our flag and SES uh, development courses. I sort of uh, do a, a wide range of things that that have to do with ethics, including working with um, our our Naval Leadership School, which is in Newport, and also um, one of my favorite things to do, which is work with the Senior Enlisted Academy. They they, they like to have me come over, and, and I like to pick their brains about things because I get the real answer um, bluntly from them um, about what I have wrong, and I need that. Um, so in terms of philosophy and PME, I mean, I think his definition of, of philosophy is, you know, is, is fairly good. I think philosophy is roughly, you know, how do you 
think systematically or approach the world, right? Whether it's knowledge, morality, uh, science, religion, what have you. Um, and so I think uh, most of my students are between 04 and 0, uh, 04 and 05, maybe some 03 and occasional 06. Um, from different branches of the military, mostly Navy, but we, we do the joint thing. We also have civilians and international uh, students. Um, and so I think philosophy is important because I think what, a lot of what you're dealing with as a senior leader is complexity. It's situations exactly like the messy one we are now all ensconced in, whether we like it or not, and having to think about things uh, perhaps in ways that you haven't had to think about them before or that drawing on your experience alone will not help you. Um, experience um, is useful to a degree. My dissertation was on David Hume, who's a big fan of uh, experience, but it, it can only take you so far. So um, part of my job is to get students to think more critically to be able to identify and think about their assumptions, not necessarily change them, but figure out why they have those assumptions, are they warranted, and then really clarify what that means for thinking about leadership and and also ethics. I think it's very important, as, as uh, Admiral Stockdale also thought, that you need to think about moral questions before you get in those situations. And our students are in the nice position of having some uh, experience, some real world experience, but then being in a transitional state to uh, senior leadership. So it's a good time to stop, take a breath, um, and look back at their experience, but then also look forward to where they're going and really think about uh, many of the complex moral issues, um, you know, some of which are perennial and some of which maybe have to do with emerging technologies and, 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 and seem more new. So I think philosophy, it's not about are we reading Plato and Aristotle, although that does happen. It's about... Um, using different authors and different frameworks to think about your own thinking. So philosophy is really your own uh, thinking and, and doing some self-analysis. Well, let me, uh, let me start off by saying first that you really did a good job in I should tell people that the book involves philosophy, but it is not one of those philosophical tomes about the being in itself and of itself and all the other <laughs> stuff that will get you completely lost in some kind of existential mist. But it is, uh, you've done a great job of setting forth the discussion and discussing in terms people can understand, uh, even those of us who did not do well in philosophy in college. Um, can understand what, by referring to movies, re referring to uh, literature such as the Kane Mutiny, things that that uh, most of us have, you know, a few good men, movies that many of us have seen and enjoyed. I would have chosen a few other movies, of course, but uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> that is that is just me. Um, but I think I'm going to ask you a question somewhere, somewhere along the line here. The first question is uh, the one you asked in your book: Why do we discuss obedience? Uh, good question, um, and thank you for the compliment. I was hoping that this book would um, be accessible, more accessible than most philosophy books are to a wider audience. I think obedience is uh, is, is important because um, both in the political realm and the, in the military realm, it's taken as a basic sort of assumption that we need to work with, right? And so any attempt to engage in disobedience usually has to have some kind of justification. So civil disobedience is a case where we expect some kind of justification in terms of an injustice. The reason to be disobedient is to protest against an injustice. In the military, um, we really don't like disobedience in general, um, but especially since Nuremberg and, and in the United States, since My Lai, which was the topic of my dissertation, there, there's this concern about uh, what I would call uncritical obedience, right? The idea that one must obey in all circumstances re regardless, without question. Um, and, and I know that that's probably, I'm, I'm treading on heretical ground for some of our military listeners, um, but you are expected to disobey, uh, disobey a manifestly illegal or immoral order. 
Um, so the question is, like, how do you know when you should obey and how do you know when you should disobey? And it's the same problem in the political realm. So this is sort of a basic sort of issue that we think about. And, and for those of us who are parents or who have been parents, even if your children are grown, obedience is something that you navigate on a daily basis. I have teenagers, and so um, that was interesting writing this book, really thinking about my own context about to what degree do I expect unflinching, uncritical dis- obedience from my children. And I think... Uh, thinking about the parenting paradigm is, is it's not perfect, but it's useful in, in helping us understand that there, there are complexities here. There are times when we actually do want people to be disobedient. Now, my caveat is that those are usually exceptions to the rule. I think there's a presumption in favor of obedience for lots of good reasons. Um, and obedience has value, but there there's a there's plenty of historical circumstances that we could point to and that I try to point to in the book uh, that show us examples of where we think, yeah, disobedience actually is, is morally justified in certain circumstances. Um, General Milley has, has talked about the idea of disciplined disobedience. So it's not like willy-nilly, my kids get to do whatever they want. We're going to let the Army you know, do whatever they want. But there's a sense of disobedience, but it's, it's disciplined and it's, it's targeted in certain kinds of ways. So I think it's useful to think about these circumstances before you get into a circumstance where you might choose disobedience or something less than full-throated obedience. Because in the book I talk about, I I develop a taxonomy of a range of things between flagrant disobedience and, and full intentional voluntary obedience. It's funny. You just stole my question. It was on the tip of my, <laughs> my tongue because um, back in 2017, the first time that I saw um, General Billy's comment about discipline, disobedience, and boy, I would like for that to get more discussion and traction. I was really glad to, to see it in your book uh, because at least from a Navy perspective, you always look at the, the, the hierarchy of, and I know I'm going to upset some people. That's okay. That's what we do here. Um, <laughs> the Air Force is always the most rigid when it rigid when it comes to silly rules. The Army is always insane to work with because of their bureaucracy, both of which I've learned in detail in my past. Um, and it, it would be great to see the at least, in my opinion, the U.S. Army to talk some more about that. You know, the concept of discipline, disobedience. But another thing that I really I liked about your book because through Throughout history and, and with stories, sometimes there are incidents where you see a lot of attention and what people want to talk about and maybe teach about or lesson about certain personalities get more attention than others that in your own mind really shouldn't. And uh, you, you're probably one of the, the best people I know to, to ask this question to. You know, you mentioned Neelai before that, that you worked on your dissertation. And I was glad for, for you to mention Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson and what he did uh, in response, because I don't think his story isn't so much talked about, but thought about. If you could please, in the context of of obedience and uh, the responsibilities of an officer in the U.S. military, could you talk a little bit about uh, what Hugh Thompson did and the example he set in the context of your book, if you could. I'm um, sure. So the context is uh, what's referred to as the My Lai Massacre, and this was a Charlie Company, an, an Army company um, led by Lieutenant uh, William Kelly, went into a village in an area of Vietnam that was had been designated as a free fire zone, which essentially meant that you could shoot at anything that was there, um, essentially ignoring the principle of discrimination or distinction if you're a lawyer. Um, and they'd had intelligence that uh, that the only people in the village that morning would be Viet Cong or Viet Cong sympathizers. There would be no non-combatants there. And so they go in and um, they're not really getting returning fire, but they sort of keep going. And the long and short of it is that Callie's, um, Callie's troops end up um, killing... Um, 
as well as engaging in, in sexual assault and torture of, depending on the account that you look at, anywhere from 350 to just under 500 non-combatant civilians. Um, and so this is going on, and Hugh Thompson is a helicopter pl pilot who had been tasked with air support, and he's flying over the village, and I, I often point this out to my students. We did the Mili case uh, uh, a few weeks ago in the leadership profession of arms class and pointed out he has a vantage point that you might not have if you're, you know, one of Kelly's soldiers and he sees what's going on and makes a judgment, which is something I focus on a lot in the book. Chapter seven is about professional judgment discretion and he exercises his professional judgment discretion, lands, tells his pilots to land the helicopter down in the village and he says, Essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, he tells his gunner to train the guns on, on Callie's troops, and um, if they don't stop putting himself between Callie's troops and these uh, a bunch of the civilians, um, and so that they don't stop firing on them. So, in a way, this is this certainly is, uh, it's not maybe strict disobedience because Hugh Thompson is not under orders from Callie, uh, but it certainly is a spirit of disobedience and, and a lot of people, especially at the time, saw it as something worse, actually disloyalty. And I, in the book, I talk about what's the relationship between obedience and loyalty. Um, so this is quite a shocking thing. Um, he is essentially, um, you know, taking sides against his own, his own compatriots to defend and ultimately evacuate um, some of these non-combatants. Um, eventually, and by eventually I mean like decades later, he is he is given you know recognition and awards for this. But at the time, he was not he was not a popular guy, um, and so it raises all kinds of issues like moral courage, like like how did he know that was the right thing to do? How is that justified? All of these kinds of um, kinds of questions. And so it's a really it's an interesting case, especially juxtapositioned against a, a wide range of behavior from Cali's troops. Some of them sort of walked away and engaged in sort of uh, what I call passive disobedience or um, just avoiding things. Other people participated. Grudgingly, other people, uh, by accounts, participated, you know, willingly and intentionally and voluntarily. Um, so, but here you have a pretty, you know, pretty glaring, uh, stark example of someone in terms of both disobedience and disloyalty, perhaps, drew a line in, in the sand and said, no, um, this is going to stop. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting story um, to think about. Yeah, part of my uh, thought process when I'm reading the book is this is not a book as about obedience, although it is a book about obedience, but there's a lot of this book about disobedience. When is it appropriate uh, to say, no, this is wrong, or when is it appropriate to take your boss's orders and say, no, uh situation on the ground is different than what you've got, you know, what, mm -hmm. the, what the order yeah. were. Uh, and I've got to change what we're going to do to meet that. Uh, can you kind of discuss that distinction and, and uh, run with that question a little bit? Um, yeah. So I think in order to think about disobedience, I mean, obedience. I mean, I define obedience as voluntary, intentional carrying out of an order issued by someone who's a legitimate authority. Right. Um, and so what that means is then disobedience may have to do uh, with a judgment about the justification of that person's authority. It may have to do with the judgment about the nature of, of that command. So disobedience is, um, is complicated. It's not as simple as just saying to the person's face, no, I won't do that. And we have lots of examples from, from, from warfare and um, other military history of where an order is issued and events on the ground have changed and, you know, someone has to make a judgment about uh, not just how to carry out that order. Because I think you could always argue that was always, that's always a part of sort of military culture, right? That you're given the order and you try to 
go with commander's intent. Um, but there may be uh, times when actually the, the order itself has to change because events on the ground have changed. You need people who have professional judgment and discretion who can make that make that call. And the only way that can happen is if they've had practice at it. Um, and so that kind of leads to a, a counterintuitive a proposal on my part that we need to have people practice uh, disobedience in sort of more safe um, contexts. Um, and I give an example from, you know, uh, the British Army has a particular way that they want a procedure because they're British. They have to have a procedure for everything. But it's lovely. And so it's a kind of a structured way to engage in what under normal circumstances might be viewed as disobedience, but it's a way to engage with your superiors and your peers about thinking through is this still the right thing to do um, in, a, in a critical way, right? So my argument isn't that we're going to discuss every order in committee, um, but it is that there sometimes there are circumstances uh, when when it needs to be uh, when it needs to be rethought, and I guess the example I use is to compare it to medical care. So there's certain protocols for certain diseases or certain ailments um, in medicine, but I pay my doctor or my insurance pays my doctor to know what those protocols are, but also know when they should be departed from, and that's what professional judgment and discretion. Uh, really is. And I give an example of in Chapter 8, which is about the idea of negotiation, which isn't like haggling negotiation, um, but it's an example from the Western Front, French troops in 1917-1918 uh, mutinied, basically. Um, and it wasn't just a strict mutiny. There were things leading up to it, and there was a whole range of disobedient and less than disobedient behaviors. But the result of those mutinies basically were a renegotiation of command authority on the Western Front. And so I use that to argue that actually those that are commanded have, in a way, have some kind of vote. They have some kind of the commander issuing orders and them being carried out. That this is a, in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a power relationship that has to be on occasion negotiated negotiated and renegotiated in certain ways. Um, <clears throat> in the same way that when my children were two and three, I could tell them to do things and largely that would happen. Now that they're teenagers, there's renegotiation of boundaries and my command authority that is happening as a natural part of them um, growing up and assuming more autonomy. Right, so it's an interesting. So it turns out that disobedience and obedience are actually pretty complicated. It's not as simple as just do what I tell you to do. One of my favorite words is uh, phrases is words mean things. But as you, <laughs> as you point out real early on in the book, yes, words mean things, but those words can have multiple meanings, which I guess is part of the philosopher's full-time employment act. But Mm -hmm. You outlined just, just the word obedience itself, it, and you outlined a couple of different threads where different philosophers um, or thinkers over time have given it three different definitions and three types of definitions. And I think that type, it ties in well the first part of your answer earlier, and that has to do with the implications of obedience, what type of obedience we're looking at and responsibility and accountability for actions through the chain of command. And that really gets complicated real fast. How do you, how do you have your students who, um, you know, are leaders, how do you kind of inculcate that thought with them? Um, in, in the sense of, I mean, I guess what I try to get them to see, and as I was writing the book, I was, of course, trying out my ideas on my students. Um, and so, I mean, I think what it, what it comes down to is that the reason why we think obedience is important, especially in the military, is that it helps us do things. Right, it helps us with combat effectiveness. It helps us with esprit de corps. It helps us achieve missions. Right, so that what we find in history is that disobedience tends to be justified when it has good effects. Right, 
um, or when there's some kind of justification or exception that can be made that we look back and we say, yeah, that was the right call. Um, so it turns out that obedience isn't just a good thing in and of itself, right? It's not a, a virtue and it's not what philosophers would call an intrinsic virtue necessarily, um, but it's a virtue because it has certain uh, good uh, side effects that we like. In my case, my children's obedience makes my house run smoothly and it makes me not crazy. And so I'm not yelling like a crazy person, right? In the military, obedience allows us to, to as Foucault says, you know, have control of bodies and, and move large masses of people in a coordinated fashion, get them to do things they wouldn't do otherwise. And as we're finding out um, with our little toilet paper shortage, right, the you know, disobedience can have, um, you know, difficult, it's problematic because it has difficult effects. We, we run our society based on the fact that people are going to largely obey certain norms and rules. Um, and so obedience is good because it has good effects. Now, if those effects don't obtain or if there's no, or if there's less of a reason to produce those effects, then it starts to open the question of whether one should be obedient under those circumstances. So um, so an example, I don't think it's in the book, but I've used it uh, in class, is my two kids are home alone together and my oldest son uh, has a toe injury and he's bleeding quite badly and there's a rule that when I'm not home, they're not to leave the house. But my youngest son leaves the house and runs down the street to the neighbors to get help because there's no landline, so they have no way to call uh, for help. Technically, he was disobedient. But, of course, I think most people listening can say, well, no, he, of course he did the right thing, right? But he was disobedient. He broke a rule. Well, what's the pur purpose of that rule? The purpose of the rule, don't leave home uh, don't leave the house when uh, you're home alone is for their safety, but here's a case of a safety issue that sort of supersedes that. So part of what I'm trying to think through in the book is to help us think about not just what obedience is, but why it's a, a virtue in certain circumstances and perhaps not in others, because then that helps us think through things like loyalty and discipline and disobedience. I'm not arguing disobedience is a virtue either, um, but obedience by itself is, is not an unqualified good. It's a good because it allows us to do certain things. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to go with uh, Nelson's blind eye. Uh, at Copenhagen, <laughs> Copenhagen, but uh, kids bleeding—that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know no, the book needed right. more naval stories. No, no, in no. It. no. I just—I I was kind of uh, uh, discussing it with my wife about uh, you know that the successful disobedience is is the one that actually turns out well. But we probably never would have Nelson again had he not carried the day. So um, right, exactly. Um, but I was amused also in your discussion of the difference between garrison discipline and uh, and combat discipline. Can you kind of run run through that a little bit? Yeah, so I think there's in the military, I think there's an interesting difference between the garrison context and the combat context. So, you know, I think in garrison, there this is my you know looking as an outsider. Uh, but I was raised in the Air Force, which has lots of, as someone pointed out, has lots of silly rules. Um, uh, there's lots of all kinds of rules that, that seem really arcane and don't seem to make a lot of sense. And it's really, you know, you, there's all these things you have to do. And part of it is about developing the habit of obedience and, you know, developing esprit de corps and developing command authority and, and sort of getting people into shape to work as a team and to think as a team. Right. Um, once we go into combat, though, like some of that seems to uh, disintegrate a little bit or, or it's a little bit looser because we care more about sort of the effects of what's happening. When you're in garrison, it's about building habits. It's about sort of training people and inculcating people into the military culture. We presume that by the time you go to combat, that's already set, and so you have to do less of that. You still have to have discipline. You still have to maintain that to a certain degree. Uh, but um, 
oddly enough, we, we tend to value professional judgment and discretion more in combat than we do in garrison. We make very little room for it in the garrison context. Um, but in combat, we tend to be much more forgiving or, or even expect it more um, because of, of the circumstances. So, um, you know, de depending on the, the, con the context, I mean, for example, grooming standards in theater, sometimes I'm thinking of the Vietnam War, um, are perhaps a little more lax if you are in a forward position. Right. Um, that's not to say there aren't grooming standards and those aren't important, but it takes on a different takes on a different tenor than it does in, in garrison context. So I kind of want to invite people to think about those two contexts and and also whether if we expect professional judgment and discretion, which could include disobedience under certain circumstances. Do we need to maybe think about what that looks like, how to allow people to practice that in garrison before they get into combat? Because if that's the first time you're sort of uh, practicing professional judgment and discretion, that's kind of a bad time to start. It's sort of like me handing my keys, my truck keys to my 12-year-old and saying, good luck, <laughs> without any driving lessons or any driving simulators or any of that. We want them to practice a little bit before I just hand them the keys and say, you know, good luck. Um, Not that I'm trying to uh, kiss up to the professor or anything, but <laughs> you, you might be proud of me here. You might be proud of me because while reading your book, I, I ran into a few things that caused me to go, wait, that can't be true. So I go look them up, you know, I go, go to the source document. <laughs> and, uh, one of the things you stated for that you. in the and you know, well, thank you very much, just trying to make you proud. In both the U.S. Uh, Army and in in the, in the British Army, I think you used military, but I, I assumed Army. I, I could be wrong here. But you mentioned that obedience is not considered a of uh, a, a value. Um, it's and not. A, I had to look not, it up. It's not yeah, it's not listed as a core yeah. value. It's not one of the core values. Right, and when I'll look it up just for the listeners. I looked up the U.S. Army, and it's interesting. And, of course, <laughs> you want to slap the staff officers came up with. I always think that they picked the Army values just so it looked like leadership because it's L-D-R-S-H-I-P, mm -hmm. but we'll beat them later. Anyway, um, U.S. Army is loyalty, duty, respect, self-service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And then when you go over to the British Army, it's there's a little overlap here. Courage, discipline, respect for others, integrity, loyalty, and selfless, selfless commitment. Uh, that lack of having obedience in there, is that a feature or a bug for our Anglosphere militaries? No, and I can't take credit for that. It was Australian um, military ethicist Nikki Coleman who wrote her dissertation on obedience. It'll be out in book form hopefully in a year or two. Um, she's the one that pointed that out um, uh, with regard to the to the Brits, and then I decided, well, I'm going to go take a look and see what uh, the U.S. military has and yeah, it was sort of an odd thing. Now you could argue that it's part of duty, perhaps for the Brits, it's part of discipline. But it's interesting that for something that's so important, in fact, so important that it's in, you know, uh, many of the the oaths that people take, right? Um, but it's not considered a, a core value. So my argument—that's part of my argument about why it's not a not a virtue in itself. It's it's a virtue that supports these other um, these other virtues like discipline or duty or or integrity. But I found that super interesting that that's the case. I'm not I'm still not quite sure what to make of that. Um, and I pose that to my students, and like you, they didn't they were skeptical. They were like, wait, that's not right. Um, and it you know it leads to some good discussions about well you know really you know, how important is is obedience and is it important in itself or is it important because it supports these other virtues? Their argument was it's sort of embedded in these other um, core values. It's there. They just don't mention it anywhere. Or it's just expected, 
right, is sort of a background in the ether, right? So it doesn't need to be called out as a as a core value because we just expect that you're going to, you know, sort of in, in Star Trek language, it's a prime directive. It's like Kant's categorical imperative. We're just going to assume everyone is following this. Well, uh which kind of raised some other interesting questions. One is that you uh, <clears throat> discussed briefly the difference between the all-volunteer force and the draftee force uh, in terms of the uh, the need for for emphasis on on uh, obedience, at least in the initial stages of a of a person's joining the military. Can you kind of discuss that a little bit? Um. Yeah, so if we have an all-volunteer force, I think the idea is we're assuming people have signed up like voluntarily that this is what they want to do, that on some level they endorse, um, you know, the values and the culture of the military, which arguably includes obedience. Um, whereas with a conscripted force, and especially historically speaking, with Conscripted forces tended to have a wider range of, say, educational backgrounds and um, happiness about about being there, uh, that you had to have a much more sort of punitive approach to things. And so obedience was absolutely necessary. And disobedience was really dangerous because if you had one person who was disobedient, you know, if you if you're thinking about being out on a ship and you've got, you know, one guy who's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. It's a really dangerous situation because it, you know, it doesn't take long for that to to degenerate uh, quickly. And there are several naval movies that we could point to, um, and books, pieces of literature that could point to that that highlight those dangers. Um, but I think that assumption of very strict obedience and uh, a non-toleration of any kind of disobedience is predicated on a certain uh, educational level, a certain kind of social context of the military that one could argue in an all-volunteer force. It's not that it's not – it's it bears no resemblance, but I think it's less true. Um, and so can you approach obedience and disobedience in different ways with an all-volunteer professional force? And part of what I'm appealing to in the book is the notion of the profession of arms and the norms and, and moral commitments that are a part of that. But that's part of what we appeal to in helping people develop professional judgment and discretion. It's not just, oh, Sal over there, you know, is cranky this morning, so he decides to disobey, right? Presumably, if Sal's going to disobey an order, he's going to have to give an accounting of that to someone else. Or if he wants to, you know, engage in something less than full-throated obedience, he's going he's gonna to have to account for that in some way. And he's going to account for that in terms of the community of practice that he belongs to, right? So he's going to appeal to some kind of norm of military professionalism right, or some kind of norm within the community to say, hey, I think we need to approach this a different way, or some piece of military expertise, right? He's going to say, no, this is a, you know, in terms of how we wage maritime conflict, this is not how we do things, right? That any other expert in the field would probably say, okay, I can, I can recognize as a reasonable, um, a reasonable argument, or it's not a reasonable argument, right? In the same way that two medical doctors thinking about a course of action, there's a shared body of knowledge and there's a shared understanding of expertise that they could appeal to to have a conversation, to have a negotiation about what the course of treatment ought to be in the case of, I don't know, pancreatic cancer. One of the uh, negative aspects of being on the receiving end of a nice, liberal arts education and a love of theater is when I read things by by inner dialogue is constantly injecting uh, various <laughs> lines from literature in. And believe it or not, uh, uh, William Shakespeare made an appearance while I was, I was reading your book. And yeah. you talk for a little bit about a concept that I think is is radical in some ways, especially for certain people's view of what a military person should do, and that has to do to obedience to yourself. Uh, I was thought, you know, Polonius and, and Shakespeare, 
you know, above all this, to thy own self be true. And it must follow as the night as the day. Thou canst not be false to any man. You know? To thyself be true, to be obedient to yourself. How does that concept work to obedience to individuals, institutions, and other things? Um, well, I mean, there's there's two ways to think about it. One is the idea of integrity, and integrity means consistency between sort of who you are and how you act, right? So that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it that is mentioned briefly in the book is the idea of, of care ethics, and then we have obligations of, of of care to people in virtue of relationships that we have with them. And, of course, we are in relationship with ourselves. And so we do have moral obligations to ourselves. Now, that's not to suggest those are the only moral obligations we have or even the primary obligations. But one does have an obligation to be presumably obedient to oneself uh, when circumstances um, suggest and that's a good thing to do just like thinking about um, obedience to other people so a lot of this is about thinking about relationships uh, that that one is is in and what uh, one owes each each person in virtue of of that relationship and so of course it is complicated because um, I mean, many of the people that are mentioned in the book, whether it's Martin Luther King Jr. or Antigone, you could argue that Antigone from Sophocles' um, play of the same name is actually a bad example of obedience to your, yourself because she's obedient to herself and to no one else. Um, but then Martin Luther King Jr., you know, we take as an example of civil disobedience. He was obedient to his own sense of what he thought was right. It, you can read the letter from the Birmingham jail. He articulates that quite clearly. But then it's also clear he, 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 he articulates obedience to other things and other ideals as well. And so those are, those are two interesting figures to think about. When I teach Antigone, my students usually have a, a negative reaction to her. They think she's arrogant. Um, they think that she's, you know, disrespectful to Creon. But from her perspective, she is obedient to the gods and obedient to her uh, to her immediate family, to her brother that she chooses to, to bury in violation of Creon's edict. Um, so I do think this question of obedience to the self is, is something that it's important to think about. It's not, it doesn't trump any other, every other consideration, but uh, we ought to take ourselves as objects of moral concern, and that means we have moral obligations uh, to ourselves. Um, I mean, one way to another way to think about it is, I mean, most of us aren't flying right now, but when you do fly, um, you know, they tell you to put your own mask on before you assist others. Um, and so I think that's a basic sort of moral precept as well. In order to have integrity, you have to have a sense of who you are within so that you can match your actions to whatever that conception is. And integrity is a core value for most militaries. It's, the Army mentions it. You know, some of the other militaries mention it as well. So, so that's something that's worth thinking about. And I, I get that that seems radical and perhaps inconsistent with selfless, something like selfless service um, or self-sacrifice, which is often taken as a military, um, military virtue. But I guess what I would say is if you don't value yourself, then it's not a sacrifice. So the notion of sacrifice assumes you have value. Um, one of the things I liked about the book is you, you took the concept of blind obedience, which unfortunately many of my civilian friends who've never served think that's all soldiers and sailors do is I oh, just do what people <laughs> tell you. Um, yeah. and those of us, who, you know, when you, the, the further you rise up in the system, the more you realize that that's not the case. In fact, uh, um, the decisions, the responsibility you have to make good decisions, which can be questioned by anyone above and below you, uh, becomes a paramount issue uh, as you as you uh, become more senior because you've got so many things to worry about. Uh, one of the things that, that you do worry about and should worry about is this uh, civilian-military gap, and you do address that in this book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um. 
Yeah. So, I mean, as I was writing this book, because I wanted to both address the military and political context, it becomes pretty clear that you have to address the civ-mil relationship, because, um, in part because members of the military are both members of the military, but they're also members of the political community of practice. They're citizens. Um, so they serve a, a dual role. But then, as is much discussed by many of my very smart colleagues, um, there, you know, there is um, seen to be a gap between military and uh, civilian uh, cultures and ways of doing things. And is that gap a problem? Is uh, what happens when you have civilian control of the military, as we do, um, and those two cultures come into? Uh, perhaps disagreement or at least uh, some tension on, on some occasions. So I thought it was important to to think through that and, and also to think through the problem of what I call uh, military veteran exceptionalism, which has gotten a little bit of treatment uh, in the press and, and whether we have this notion of military members as sort of super citizens or better citizens than the rest of us in virtue of, of their service. So that chapter is really trying to, you know, engage the dual role, but also say that you know, the kinds of things that are happening around obedience and disobedience in the military and in the political context aren't really that different, right? They're similar. And that's the whole point of the book. The book, as we go through the book, talks both about the military, <coughs> excuse me, context and the political um, community context to, to make the case that there, there's similar sort of conceptual issues going on here. So that chapter is really designed to bring all of that in conversation and try to think about what these questions mean um, for the intersection between those two communities of practice. One of the things that uh, we've talked about here on MidRaps once or twice and uh, over the course of the last decade and I've written about now and then is is a problem you see, and it's not just in the military, but especially in the military, I, I think it can be be trying. And it's not about obedience per se, but you do a really good job because kind of as we jokingly said at the beginning, words mean things, but yes, they mean a lot of different things, is when you look at words such as obedience or, or loyalty, uh, you know, you can almost see the layers and layers of, of Venn diagrams of where they overlap and where they're different. And one of the, the, the really serious challenges you can have, whether, you know, you're talking about in garrison or in combat or Navy on shore duty or at sea, at war and at peace, is when there are conflicts that come in when you make decisions, whether it's as mundane as um, – my logistics guy is getting prostitutes from this Malaysian guy to, <laughs> yeah, this sounds like an interesting idea, but if we do this, we're going to kill too many people in the process. It's that loyalty right. to people versus loyalty to institutions. And many times those are in conflict. What are some of the tools that, that leaders can use when they find themselves in a circumstance where they're they're an officer of an institution, but they also work for an individual. And the loyalty that they're asked to give to this person versus the loyalty to the institution. And and you also mentioned a concept early on that everybody does. There's another layer of the oath that you take. What are some tools they can use to help them through that dilemma of of who should get the majority vote to their loyalty when that conflict exists? Yeah, loyalty um, is is. Uh, super messy. Um, so when I teach uh, Aristotle and we talk about the virtues, I always pull loyalty out of the Army Corps values because that's an easy one to get messy really fast uh, because you have conflicting loyalties. Um, and I guess one thing that we have to think about, one thing I talk about in the book um, <clears throat> with respect to obedience, but it matters for loyalty as well, especially in the military, is is there a difference between respect and deference? Um, so respect is usually seen to be earned, um, whereas deference is in, in terms of one's rank or title or position. So I'm, I'm deferent to the Queen of England 
I don't know her. I don't know if she's done anything to earn that title or not, um, but it's in virtue of her office. And so that may also help us think through what's going on here. So that's one piece, um, especially if you're dealing um, <clears throat> perhaps with a superior that you think is making the wrong decision, right? Are you thinking through that in terms of, respect or are we just thinking about that in terms of deference the other thing is I think these conversations have to happen within the context of uh, the idea of that the military is a community of practice and it has norms and traditions and um, elements of an identity some of those come from the oath some of them come from other things but there are moral norms and commitments that uh, those who are members of that profession uh, agree to when they when they take an oath, and so I, I think that gives us some common ground to appeal to when we have disagreements. Now, that's not to say those disagreements are always going to be easy uh, to resolve, but I think then it's not just a disagreement about I want to do X and you want to do Y. Then we can have a conversation about you know, the values and the reasons that are under those two courses of action. Um, and I think in the book I talk about, you know, the, the Brits have a particular, um, you know, uh, way of, uh, of approaching this, this idea of a respectful challenge. And there's a sort of a checklist that you have to go through, right? Um, but that's a way, it's a more formal way to sort of navigate the same issue I and mean, can we have now sometimes you can't have the conversation right people are shooting and that's probably not you know that sometimes you just have to you know salute and execute but there I think there are there are plenty of, of times that especially when we are making when we are doing planning or we're thinking about what we're going to do that we do have at least some space for conversation and not just conversation in terms of I want X and you want Y, but what are the reasons and what are the norms and what are the values um, under that? So um, in my profession, I'm an educator, um, there's an ongoing debate about whether one should uh, allow uh, laptops in the classroom, a debate which is at this point moot. Um, but if we were having a discussion about it in, in my department, it shouldn't just be, well, I don't like having laptops in the classroom because students aren't paying attention to me and I need my diva attention, um, I would try to make my case in, in terms of what I think is best for the students or best in terms of our educational practices. And hopefully that's how the conversation um, <clears throat> would proceed because those are conversations that then can have more of a profitable um, outcome. So the book really seeks to both open a conversation about obedience but also frame that conversation in terms of the idea of communities of practice and the norms um, and moral values that they share, um, which that may be a bit of a, a stretch for some people, but I think that's, that's a way to have conversations where there's at least some common ground to talk about what it is we disagree about. One of the, uh, one of the Napoleon's maxims essentially says that uh, a general who undertakes a plan he knows to be faulty has an obligation, a moral obligation, to challenge that plan and do everything he can to get it changed. And failing to do, to get those changes, ought to resign rather than be party to the execution of a faulty plan. Um, in in our, in our military, we tend to think of obedience as being something directed down. And I, I mean, this is my own uh, blind eye, I guess, is that I don't, I don't, you know, but upward, how, you know, these, the people at the top of the food chain, uh, I, McMasters wrote a book about it. I think it was uh, Dereliction of Duty. Um, <laughs> yeah. When is their obligation to say no, to be disobedient, and if they can't get to that, uh, what they want, when, when should they resign? Is that is that an issue you discuss with your students? Um, frequently, yes. It's something they're, I think it's something they're worried about, and um, I think we, we worry about, it's sort of a perennial issue in American life, um, in American political life. It's not just the, the current context. Um, but uh, I I think, you know, this is complicated. So there's one way to look at it is like as a military member, your job is to give 
the best advice you can. And at the end of the day, whatever the civilian decides to do, you have to salute and execute. I think that's kind of the classical view. Um, but a another view um, might be that perhaps civilians don't have a right to be wrong and that one should, if the issue is kind of serious enough, and transgressing uh, one of those moral norms um, that one ought to uh, resign if one so let's say for the sake of argument this I hope this would never happen but um, the civilian leadership of the United States decides the only way to win a war against country X is to uh, is, is to target non-combatants is to target civilians but that's the only way to win um, otherwise, it would be a long protracted war and lots more people will die. Um, arguably, the military is committed to upholding international law and, and um, the, the customs of war, and, um, which are justified by just war theory, and those include the principles of distinction and discrimination. Right? So if civilian leadership asked senior military, said, this is what we're going to do, um, I mean, I think something like that is a would be a pretty clear-cut case where this is transgressing a moral norm within the community and practice of the military, and there would be justification to resign. Now, consequence, I mean, you can protest and you can resign, and there doesn't mean um, <clears throat> that bad things won't happen to you, just in the same way civil disobedience has consequences. But are there some norms that are important enough that that the military certain military members ought to resign to bring attention to them. Now, I think that argument is by no means uncontroversial. Right? I think there would be plenty of people who would say, no, like if the, mil if the civilian society is what we're going to do, you salute and execute. And that's because that's your job. You're the agent of the state. If the state decides they're going to engage in torture, you salute and execute. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's a place for professional judgment and discretion. That would be like saying, to my doctor, yeah, I know you said that chemotherapy would be the best idea, but what I really want to do is, I don't know, crystals to cure my pancreatic cancer, right? I mean, we would look at that and say, but that's why you have a doctor to, to like, which isn't to say you don't get a second opinion if, if, if there seems to be some problematic judgment, but we hire certain people for their professional expertise. So I think that that there's a piece of that, which isn't to say we uncritically just accept that, um, but there is there is value to that. Well, that's, uh, that's a you know, great I, answer, and th okay. let me let me thank you for being on the show today. <laughs> and I'm sure Sal thank would like you. to say nice things too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, community effort. It's just a, a, an incredible hour, and uh, we really could have spent an hour on each chapter. I highly recommend the book. I would give. Uh, the following health and safety warning, though, it will make your brain hurt. But I think that was part of the author's <laughs> desired result. And uh, do have a computer next to you because there's some stuff in there that you will feel the need to, to check up on, and you'll find out, oh, no kidding, that, that's what really happened. So um, well done. I know it was a, a challenging book to do because it's a challenging topic. And one of the questions I didn't, I didn't have a chance to ask, but it's true, is that you don't get more than 30 pages into the book till you realize that uh, incredibly smart people have been looking at the subject of obedience for a couple thousand years, um, and there's no perfect answer, but I think looking for it is the right, uh, is the right answer. And the question I have for you is, um, obviously you're up at the Naval War College doing great things, but uh, what is the area of interest that you've been working on the most right now that people wanted to keep track of what you're working on, what would you recommend for them to keep an eye on? Um, well, thank you for the, the compliment. I'm glad that um, you enjoyed the book, both of you. Um, I'm kind of on a break right now um, because I'm tired of writing, but my next project will probably be something on military honor. Um, I have a, a manuscript that uh, I wrote, but I don't remember writing, actually. Um, I found it when I moved to the Naval War College uh, in, when I cleaned out my office. Um, and so I'm going to go back and think about notions of military honor, and is, is that something that 
can it be salvaged? Um, do we, it needs to be updated? Like, what is it? I mean, we talk about it, but um, I'd like to go back and take perhaps a more rigorous look at that. But that'll that will be a ways off. Meanwhile, people um, keep up with me on Twitter and on my blog. Um, so. Well, there we go. Well, hey, um, enjoy your your ongoing. Um, social distancing and we'll do our best here and uh, look forward to talking to you again when uh, we get on the other side of the latest crisis. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you everybody for joining us for another edition of Midwest. Until next time, I hope you have a great 80 day. Cheers. Maloney wants to marry me and so Leave the strand and pick a billy Or you'll be to blame For love has fairly drove me silly Hoping you're the same It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to go It's a long way to Tipperary It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.